This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Thanks for listening in today. I'm Joel Hilliker. After the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 Supreme Court decision that permitted abortion on demand across America, a lot of leftists took to the internet to make videos of themselves expressing their outrage. Here's an example of one woman voicing her disapproval of the legal ruling. Here's a more articulate expression of frustration over the ruling. This is Anna Kasparian, host of the show, The Young Turks. Um, I don't care that you're a Christian. I don't care what the Bible says. Like, I feel like it's a clown show, like sitting here trying to decipher what your little mythical book has to say about these very real political issues, right? I don't believe in Christianity, which means that you do not get to dictate the way I live my life based on your religion. I don't care what the Bible says. You have every right in the world, all those women who identify with your religion have every right in the world to not get an abortion, to not take birth control, but they do not have the right to dictate my life and what I decide to do with my body. I'm so tired of having nonstop conversations about what the Bible says. We've talked in recent months about how we're living in the age of exposure. So many truths about our modern world are being revealed in phenomenal ways. Here's yet another example. Some things leftists have been saying after the end of Roe v. Wade have been stunning and very eye-opening, hearing these people mourning this matter being turned over to the states and grieving and screaming because the people can have a say in whether abortion should be outlawed rather than being told by the federal government that it must be permitted. In our first segment on today's show, we're going to look at some inspiring truth that these abortion advocates do not see. Then in our second segment, it's been 25 years since Hong Kong went from being a British colony to being ruled by China. We will look at its British history, history that the Chinese are now revising. In fact, China is ensuring that textbooks used in Hong Kong schools say it was never a British colony. Trumpet writer Jeremiah Jacques will explain why and what this means for Hong Kong. Then the new constitution of the Roman Catholic Church overseen by Pope Francis It just went into force last month, but the official English translation was just published last week. We'll hear a report from Trumpet writer Andrew Miller explaining why this is the most radical shakeup of the Roman Curia in a generation. And I'll finish the program today by talking about some of the absurd self-contradictions in leftists' thinking. Let's start by looking at abortion in America. Isn't it strange that so many people today want more abortion? They want looser laws, fewer restrictions, more late-term abortions. The overturning of Roe v. Wade has brought out some truly bizarre statements and behavior, and it has exposed what these people really think about God, about the Bible, about human life. These abortion advocates have a casual, even hostile perspective on human life. 
Now, those who are rejoicing that Roe v. Wade ended tend to view human life as very special, uniquely worthy of preservation and protection. Which is your view? These are obviously very opposite views. Every year in the U.S., well over a million babies are killed in the womb. That's over a quarter of all unborn children. And the large majority of these deaths occur because parents say they couldn't afford to take care of it. They weren't ready for the responsibility or they didn't want it. And abortion advocates say this is no problem. Abortion is just a medical procedure, perhaps no more serious than having a tooth pulled. But what if it's much worse than that? What if it is, in fact, murder? And are those people absolutely sure that it isn't? A woman faced with the choice of whether to get abortion is faced with an agonizing dilemma. And it doesn't do any good to discuss how safe the methods are or tell her, well, it's just an individual matter. She needs to know if it's right or wrong. And that is not a matter of opinion. There is a definite correct answer to her dilemma. A fetus is either a separate human being from its mother or it isn't. There is no middle ground. And if it is separate, abortion is an act of ending a person's life and therefore murder. And we can all agree murder is wrong. So the person who says abortion is permissible needs to prove that it isn't murder. Unless there's absolute proof that the moment of abortion, at that moment, the fetus is just part of its mother's body. It's like an organ or a growth, and abortion is potentially a murder. So if she's uncertain, she shouldn't just take a chance on that. But that kind of uncertainty is all over the medical community. It's among the family planning counselors. They all have that uncertainty, and it rests in the minds of the lawmakers who ruled on that case at the very beginning. In 1973, when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on Roe v. Wade, seven out of the nine judges agreed abortion should be legal. Now, they weren't absolutely sure that abortion isn't murder. In their own words, in the majority decision, the court said, we need not resolve the difficult question of when an unborn child actually becomes a human person with a legal right to live. They sidestep that issue. They passed off responsibility for the monumental consequences of their decision with this statement. When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus the judiciary at this point in the development of man's knowledge is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. Since the court made that decision, by some estimates, over 63 million babies were legally killed in the United States. So that's about 20% of the current U.S. population. That's the danger of uncertainty. That's the problem with not knowing the truth about this issue. By not quote, speculating as to the answer of whether abortion is right or wrong, the court did make a definite decision affecting millions of mothers, exterminating the lives of millions of unborn people. We'll talk more about when human life starts in a little bit. But first, where does the view that human life is sacred or that there's sanctity in human life, where does that view come from? We might think that the inherent precious value of human life is self-evident, but abortionists don't think so. 
most people don't stop to think about it, but that assessment of human life comes from the Bible. Anna Kasparian doesn't care, but the Bible reveals that human beings were created by God. And the very first chapter in the Bible describes God renewing the face of the earth, creating a beautiful environment that would support life. He put the atmospheric and the geological conditions together, the, the plant life in a spectacular variety, animal life in the skies and in the seas, and then land creatures of every cattle, every kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth after his kind. And why did he do all this? He did it for human life. As his crowning physical creation, it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So the, the first chapter in the Bible shows that human beings are unlike any other element in creation. We're made in God's image and likeness. And it further reveals that God gave man dominion over all the other creatures. So without the Bible and its seen and unseen effect on our history and on our society, perhaps most of us or all of us would view human life as an accident, as a product of evolution or something that's really insignificant. The rest of the Bible reveals why God made man and what his purpose for us is. And it is a most inspiring truth. God took pains to reveal it to us, to give us hope, to give us inspiration and motivation to live productive, moral, and purposeful lives. And most people do not understand the Bible, but you flip it open to almost any page and you will see evidence of the specialness and purpose of human life. In Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, King David wrote, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, and moon, and the stars which you have ordered, what is man that you are mindful of him? Out of all his vast creation, why does God care so much about human beings? That psalm continues in verses 5 through 9. For you have made him a little lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor. You made him to have dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea. O Lord our God, how excellent is your name in all the earth. David was awestruck at God's marvelous creation. And the fact that God crowned human beings with such honor at the head of all that creation. In the New Testament, the author of Hebrews had studied this Psalm of David. And Hebrews 2 and verse 6, it says, But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that you're mindful of him? Quoting the, the verse about uh, God putting the creatures under human dominion. But then he expanded on that. And Herbert W. Armstrong explained this in his book, Mystery of the Ages. But now the writer of the book of Hebrews is inspired to expand David's prophecy to add something radically different, something to happen in the world to come. This revealed knowledge of God's purpose for mankind, of man's incredible, awesome potential, staggers the imagination. Science knows nothing of it. No religion reveals it so far as I know. And certainly higher education is in utter ignorance of it. Nevertheless, it is what God says he has prepared for them that love him. And he showed that this passage in Hebrews 2, it plainly reveals 
God's purpose for man. God made human beings to actually help him govern not just earth, but the universe. It describes God crowning Jesus Christ with glory and honor and then intending to bring many sons unto glory the way he brought his son Jesus Christ to glory. The truth about God's purpose for human beings is awesome. And it's wonderful. Mr. Armstrong wrote a whole book about it. It's called The Incredible Human Potential, which shows that this inspiring purpose is in the Bible from beginning to end. God wants us to understand this truth. This gives our lives meaning. This gives us direction. This gives us crucial perspective on just why it is so important to protect and preserve life. When we reject this truth the way that modern secular society has, then we can't see anything particularly special about human life. Humanism and other ideologies and religions, they, they're poor substitutes. And when we lack understanding on this point, then we descend into the kind of thinking that you see in America today, in the abortion culture. You see the kind of emotional response to the idea that this might actually save a few unborn lives. Having created us for a wonderful purpose, God is serious about protecting human life. He gave several laws for that purpose. It starts, obviously, with the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. That's in Exodus 20 and verse 13. And throughout history, Societies that departed furthest away from godly thinking have come to view murder not as a sin, not as a crime, but as a valuable tool for getting what they want. Just in the 20th century, you had governments helmed by Mao Zedong, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Hirohito, Pol Pot, Ho Chi Minh. They took a very cheap view of life. They killed millions upon millions of people in pursuit of their political aims. God considers human life so valuable that he commands in Exodus 21 and verse 12, he that smites a man so that he die shall be surely put to death. It's, it's very interesting. It's, this is the only law that is repeated in all five of the books of the Pentateuch. You can see the law commanding that a murderer be killed, that he be put to death. You see it in Genesis 9 and verse 6. You see it in Exodus 21 verse 12, Leviticus 24 verses 17 to 21, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19. God emphasizes this. There are a lot of people who say the death penalty is unjust, that it's hypocritical, that it somehow degrades human life. God says it shows the supremely high value of human life. It shows just how precious was the life of that innocent victim by demanding the severest of penalties for the person who took it. Now, in order to understand this you do have to understand God's plan for human life you have to understand the Bible's teaching on the afterlife God reveals that he's going to resurrect all sinners who've never known him including murderers who were executed so everyone will have the opportunity to repent and live forever you can read that in Revelation 20 verses 11 and 12 so that execution is not an eternal death sentence 
God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he demanded the death penalty not only to put a murderer out of his misery and then reserve him for a later resurrection, but also so others would hear and fear to prevent more innocent life being taken. Such a serious command protecting life has a powerful deterrent effect. Fewer people commit murder, so you have fewer murder victims and you have fewer executed murderers. That's what God intends through those laws. In the law that God gave, even the punishment for manslaughter, accidental killing, was severe. The killer had to completely uproot himself and flee to a city of refuge. He had to remain there until the high priest died. You can read about that in Numbers 35. This was also there to engender deep respect for life of fellow man. God's law even commands that an animal that kills a human being should be killed. There are a lot of other ancient codes of law that address an animal injuring or killing a human being, but only in God's law was the animal subject to the death penalty and its flesh was unfit for human consumption. In Babylon, for example, the uppermost concern was to protect the property of the wealthy and powerful. In God's law, the sanctity of a human life formed in the image and likeness of God is paramount. Now, given all that, God even gave a law to protect the life of an unborn child in the womb. You can read that in Exodus 21, verses 22 and 23. This is how the New King James Version reads. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, meaning no injury came to the fetus, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. So the perpetrator just had to pay damages for whatever inconvenience or hardship might have come on the parents. But then it says, if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life. In other words, if his actions caused the unborn child to die, then he was sentenced to death. In the eyes of God's law, human life is sacred, and the life of an unborn child is equal to that of an adult. That, that's the penalty for accidentally killing a fetus. How do you suppose God views doctors who perform abortions or counseling services that pressure pregnant women into killing their babies, or judges who decide that it's legal, quote-unquote, or politicians and lobbyists and activists who encourage those kinds of laws and get really upset if there's anything that gets in the way of a woman who wants to kill her own unborn child? What does God think of those things? This message about the supreme value of human life is consistent all the way through the Bible. And it's when we ignore that revelation from our creator that we get ourselves into trouble that's when we begin to justify acts of brutality toward other human beings even killing abortion advocates they always use noble language like freedom and choice and health care and equality and women's rights and women's health they wouldn't get very far proclaiming the virtues of fornication and poisoning and dismemberment. But the closer you look into the 
actual reality of abortion, the more shocking and grotesque it is. Once people remove God from the picture and they discard absolutes and begin traveling down this road in their thinking, they end up justifying actions that are more and more horrific. When human beings reject God's revelation and begin reasoning their way through questions of life and death, they subject themselves to the evil influence of the enemy of human beings. Rationalization for all kinds of destructive behavior increases, even killing. Now again, as to this matter of when a human life begins, it is at conception. That's the Bible's reckoning, but the fact is that's also the only scientifically viable view. You cannot answer that question satisfactorily, definitively, any other way. After conception, there is no stage of a child's development, no moment of maturation that suddenly makes him or her become a human being. He is a human being at conception. We have an article at The Trumpet, it was printed in our February 2005 issue called, Is Abortion Really Murder? And in it, Fred Dadalo wrote this. In 1981, the U.S. Congress convened hearings in an effort to determine when a human life begins. Dr. Jerome Lejeune, world-renowned geneticist, said that each individual has a very neat beginning, the moment of its conception. Dr. Watson A. Bowles Jr. from the University of Colorado Medical School testified the beginning of a single human life is, from a biological point of view, a simple and straightforward matter. The beginning is conception. Dr. Alfred Bongiovanni from the University of Pennsylvania Medical School added, I am no more prepared to say these early stages in the womb represent an incomplete human being than I would be to say the child prior to the dramatic effects of puberty is not a human being. This is human life at every stage, albeit incomplete until late adolescence. The chairman of the Department of Medical Genetics at the Mayo Clinic, Professor Jaime Gordon, confirmed by all criteria of modern molecular biology, life is present from the moment of conception. These are biologists. These are geneticists. And of the dozens of people who testified at those hearings, there was overwhelming agreement that conception marks the beginning of human life. The only reason why anyone would disagree over this point is that people want to go on with their lives without an unwanted unborn child. They want, to, they want to be able to kill it. And if that's the imperative, then they have to find a way to justify killing that life before he's born. And, and some people even say after. So it all becomes very fuzzy in their minds. But if you, if you want to understand the biblical truth on this subject, you should read this article, Is Abortion Really Murder? We'll link to it in the show notes for this program. It gives physical proofs, and it also gives some really compelling spiritual proofs. Coming to realize what God, what the creator of human beings is doing with physical and spiritual conception and birth is stunning. It's very inspiring. When you understand what God seeks to accomplish through human beings. It becomes obvious why human life is so precious to him and why abortion is such a terrible travesty. God is a God of life. 
He created life. He created human beings and he protects human beings from other human beings. He loves human beings and he wants the best for us. And this is a beautiful truth that abortion advocates do not recognize. When we believe God's truth and his revelation and accept his guidance and follow his laws, we are blessed for it. And our lives become infused with purpose and hope. Our thinking becomes cleaner and brighter and more positive. A society that respects his creation and his laws also respects life in all its forms. God tells us in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your seed may live. God wants us to live. He wants to give his truth and his law to us. He gives us that so that we and our children may live. And he tells us plainly and pleads with us, do not choose death. Don't go your own way. Don't reason your way through this. Follow me. Obey me. Learn to think as I think. Learn to view human life as I do. Learn my wonderful purpose for you and for your children and choose life. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. It's been 25 years since Hong Kong ceased being a British colony. But China wants people to believe not just that it's no longer a British colony, but that it never was, as we will now hear in this report from Jeremiah Jacques. When high school students in Hong Kong start classes this September, they'll be learning from a new set of textbooks that the Chinese Communist Party has just approved for their schools. And these books teach a contorted version of the history of their island for the purpose of turning these young people into blindly loyal Chinese nationalists. The South China Morning Post was the first publication to report on this story last month, and it stressed that the most dramatic change in these new textbooks is that they will teach that Hong Kong was never a colony of Great Britain. So the books are used in what are essentially civics classes. And they say that since the Chinese Communist Party doesn't recognize the 19th century agreements that gave Great Britain control of Hong Kong, that means Hong Kong was never a British colony. The Chinese Communist Party, or the CCP, has led China since 1949. And this regime has long claimed that it doesn't recognize treaties that a previous Chinese government, the Qing Dynasty, had signed with the British. So now, the CCP is trying to rewrite that history. The truth is, before Great Britain raised its flag over Hong Kong Island back in 1841, the island was a sparsely inhabited area of just a few small fishing villages. Official census data shows that only 7,450 people lived there. Around that time, British Foreign Secretary Lord Palmerston famously called it, quote, a barren island with hardly a house upon it. But after Hong Kong Island was ceded to Britain 
in the first opium war, the British began developing this land and governing it with their law-based system. Hong Kong immediately became a hub for European traders eager to do business with China under British protection. They began flocking there, and so did Chinese nationals who were seeking jobs building the new town. And then as mainland China underwent bouts of upheaval, several waves of Chinese refugees fled to Hong Kong. So it kept on growing, and then in 1898, the British signed a new treaty that gave them control over not just the island, but also the surrounding area called the New Territories for a duration of 99 years. Meanwhile, more people kept on moving in, and by 1956, the population of Hong Kong had grown to 2.5 million people. Under British government, the flourishing territory took on a unique identity. It's an identity that historian Steve Song discusses in his book, A Modern History of Hong Kong. He writes, British rule led to the rise of a people that remains quintessentially Chinese, and yet share a way of life, core values, and an outlook that resembles at least as much, if not more, that of the average New Yorker or Londoner, rather than that of their compatriots in China." End quote. As Hong Kong progressed through the 20th century, its population and wealth continued to mushroom. It became the world's eighth largest trading entity, the third highest ranking center of global finance, and one of the most densely populated and richest places on earth. As a British colony, the barren island was dramatically transformed into a model of opulence, modernity, and rule of law. That is the true and inspiring history of Hong Kong. It's history that not just the British, but also the people of Hong Kong should take pride in. And the success of it was made inescapably clear back in 1997, when that 99-year treaty expired. As the Chinese Communist Party finalized the deal to end British rule over the island at that time, it committed itself to giving Hong Kong 50 years to maintain its social and economic systems, as well as its judicial system based on the rule of law. Why would the highly nationalistic leaders of China risk letting one part of their country have far broader freedoms than the rest? Because despite the CCP's hatred of the West and their particular hatred of Britain's colonialism, they could not deny that the system that the British had established in Hong Kong was extraordinarily successful. In 1997, Hong Kong's population stood at 6.4 million people, so that was only about half of 1% of China's total population. Yet, Hong Kong's economy at that time accounted for a stunning 18% of China's total gross domestic product. If you look at the gross domestic product per person, Hong Kong's was about $25,300 per person. The figure for mainland China, meanwhile, was less than $800 per year per person. So these stunning economic figures reveal just how truly remarkable Hong Kong's system was. And they show the reason why the CCP felt compelled to put their hatred of the West aside and to give Hong Kong quite a lot of autonomy. The model was undeniably superior 
to that of the rest of China in economic terms. So they had little choice. And the facts show that that system was the result of Hong Kong having been a colony built and shaped by the British system for a century and a half. But the Chinese leadership continued to grow more and more hostile to Hong Kong's freedoms, particularly since the people of Hong Kong would sometimes take to the streets to protest instances of Beijing breaking its promises to let them have 50 years to maintain their systems. In 2019, the protesters' numbers swelled into the millions. So China responded by imposing sweeping national security laws on Hong Kong, and then using these laws to dismantle Hong Kong's independent news outlets and to prosecute thousands of people who loved the legacy of British rule and wanted to preserve it. With these new laws, China replaced what was left of the old judicial system based on the British model of rule of law with CCP enforcers. These enforcers operate above the law. They do anything they can to tighten the Communist Party's grip just as the CCP's paramilitary forces do in the mainland. So with these measures, the CCP silenced those who appreciate British rule and wish to keep operating on those principles. The CCP has muzzled them, and it has turned Hong Kong into just another oppressed Chinese city. But Chinese General Secretary Xi Jinping is not content to control Hong Kong only in the present. He is also determined to safeguard CCP control of the territory's future. So that's why, just as Hong Kong crossed the 25-year mark of its handover from Great Britain, he is now actively working to teach a new version of history in order to shape the worldview of the next generation. He's working to shape these young people into Chinese nationalists and CCP loyalists people who have no gratitude at all for the British legacy, but only hatred of it. That's why he is revising the history that Hong Kongers are taught. Jeffrey Ngo is a Hong Kong pro-democracy activist at Georgetown University who spoke to the New York Times about the new textbooks. He said, It's about trying to make sure the next generation of young kids are going to be supportive or at least sympathetic to what the government is saying. This is part of the remake of Hong Kong. And then he continues saying the change with the new books is, quote, shorthand for saying Hong Kong was always a part of China. Thus, Hong Kongers never could claim a right of self-determination. So the books are rewriting history to try to deter the next generation from protesting against the CCP's power grabs. And these new books also teach that those 2019 protests were violent acts of terrorism and were caused mainly by foreign interference. Even a brief study of the events in Hong Kong that year shows that this is not based on any facts. But Steve Song says that in Xi Jinping's approach to history, facts are merely incidental. The only thing that matters is interpretation, and only one interpretation is allowed. That one interpretation was spelled out last year by Hong Kong's former top leader, Lung Chongying. He said, Many friends in Hong Kong, including some from the opposition camp, say they love Hong Kong very much. They say, how did the Hong Kong they love so much come into existence? 
Well, it exists under the People's Republic of China, which is being ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. The Hong Kong that we love so much, including our way of life and the capitalist system, was designed by the Chinese Communist Party. End quote. That is a blatant lie, but it is essentially what the new textbooks are now teaching. They do acknowledge that Britain imposed colonial rule on Hong Kong, but they deny that that rule was legitimate or that it had any positive influence at all on the territory. They insist that anything positive about Hong Kong was the result of the CCP's leadership. And these books are just one component of an educational system that is being entirely revamped for Hong Kong. Chinese Communist Party officials say they are changing all of it now in order to, quote, protect young minds. But it will actually be deceiving young minds in order to turn them into blindly loyal Chinese nationalists. And since the Chinese Communist Party has control over the way the past is taught, this campaign is likely to succeed. As George Orwell famously wrote, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. The truth, whether the CCP approves of it or not, is that the British and later the American leadership stabilized much of the world for decades, and it advanced civilization for numerous peoples and nations. This is perhaps more evident in Hong Kong, the barren island turned beacon of prosperity and law, than anywhere. But the Anglo-American era is now coming to an end, and clouds are now gathering for a dark new era. The book of Luke in chapter 21, verse 24, calls this future era the times of the Gentiles. And this is a passage that Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry discussed in detail in his February 2020 article called The Climax of Man's Rule Over Man. He explains that the term Gentile in this context refers to two main powers, one that revolves around Germany and the other that revolves around Russia and China. When these times of the Gentiles are in full effect, United States influence will have vanished, and nations such as China will have filled the vacuum of power. Mr. Fleury writes, These times of the Gentiles are yet to be fully realized. However, we are in the outer edges of this catastrophic storm. In Hong Kong, the effects of the transition from Anglo-American rule to Gentile rule are on display in microcosm. We see the transition clearly there, and the CCP's abuse of rule gives us a preview of just how dark and violent the catastrophic storm will be worldwide. Luke 21:26 says men's hearts will be failing them for fear during this era. So this will be a violent storm. But the very next verse shows that the storm will break up and give way to a spectacular radiance. It shows that the times of the Gentiles, the overcast outer edges of which the world is already in, will transition directly into an utterly revolutionary new era of truth and peace. To understand the significance of mankind's shift into the times of the Gentiles, and the hope that lies on the other side of them, Read Mr. Fleury's article, The Climax of Man's Rule Over Man.
This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. The Pope just finished writing a new constitution for the Vatican. It makes for some quite radical changes in the Roman Catholic Church, as we will now hear in this report from Andrew Miller. Pope Benedict XVI shocked the world when he became the first pope to resign since the Middle Ages. After the pope's butler leaked confidential documents to the press, exposing power struggles within the Vatican bureaucracy, Benedict decided he was too frail to implement the reforms necessary to fix the Roman Curia. So Pope Francis was elected with a mandate to reform the Vatican. Francis got to work right away and appointed a panel of cardinals to advise him on how to reorganize the Roman Curia, which is the administration that governs Vatican City. Now the Pope and these cardinals have finished their new constitution. Titled Preach the Gospel, this new constitution was published in Italian on March 19th and went into force on June 5th. But the official English translation was not published until June 29th. It reveals the most radical shakeup of the Roman Curia in a generation. Now, most of the news coverage about the new Vatican Constitution revolves around the Pope's decision to allow lay Catholics, even including women, to lead curial departments. The news coverage also revolves around the Pope's decision to incorporate a clergy abuse commission into church government. But these developments are far from the most significant reforms implemented in Preach the Gospel. The most significant reforms restructure all curial activities under one simple mission. Support the Pope and his bid to convert all nations. Now the preamble of the new constitution says, Preaching the Gospel is the task that the Lord Jesus entrusted his disciples. This mandate constitutes the primary service that the church can render to every individual and to all humanity in the modern world. To this end, she has been called to proclaim the gospel of the Son of God, Christ the Lord, and thereby awaken all peoples to the hearing of the faith. Now with this mission statement established, the rest of the constitution is a blueprint on the hierarchical structure of the Roman Catholic Church. Regarding the Curia, the document explains... The Roman Curia is at the service of the Pope, who is the successor of Peter, is the perpetual and vigil source and foundation of the unity both of the bishops and of the whole company of the faithful. The Roman Curia is not set between the Pope and the bishops, but is at the service of both. Now, in the centuries since Pope Paul III established the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith in 1542, An idea has cropped up in the Roman Catholic world that the Pope is the head of a curia that in turn leads the church. The new constitution reestablishes the fact that each diocese of the Catholic Church is led by a bishop who in turn reports directly to the Pope. The curial offices do not lead the church and only exist to assist both the Pope and these bishops with certain tasks. So the Pope's much-touted decision to let lay Catholics lead curial departments is meant to emphasize the fact that the Roman Curia does not wield ecclesiastical authority. After emphasizing that the Pope is the head of the church, the new constitution establishes a powerful secretary of state to oversee the temporal management of Vatican City. 
It also gives top billing to a new diastory for evangelization. This diastory merges the congregation for the evangelization of peoples, which coordinates Catholic missionary activities, with the Pontifical Council for the Promotion of New Evangelization, which is tasked with reversing the secularization of Western countries. The diastory for evangelization supersedes all other departments, including the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is responsible for defending Catholic doctrine. Now, some conservative Catholics fear prioritizing evangelization above doctrine will liberalize the church, but Francis condemns their rigidity. In comments published on June 14th, Francis told a meeting of Jesuit editors that restorationism has come to gag the Second Vatican Council. He then added that he knew priests for whom the 16th century Council of Trent was more memorable than the second century Vatican Council. Yet ironically, Francis may be more restorationist than the restorationist. For the past 500 years or so, the Vatican has been mostly run by bureaucrats intent on defending Catholic dogma from Protestantism and secularism at all costs. But the sixth century Pope, Gregory the Great, wrote a letter advising Augustine of Canterbury to compromise with pagan beliefs to bring Anglo-Saxon tribes into the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church was actually built by merging pagan practices with Christian doctrine. In 1983, the late Herbert W. Armstrong predicted that the Vatican might issue a more flexible moral code. During the papacy of John Paul II, Mr. Armstrong wrote, the moral and spiritual trend in the world is towards more liberalism, more permissiveness. Now, even the Roman Catholic Church, in order to keep alive in an immoral and unrighteous world, is relaxing and giving people what they like to call their rights. Mr. Armstrong was able to make this prediction because he understood Catholicism's pagan history. In his landmark book, Who or What is the Prophetic Beast?, he wrote, Where did Sunday observance originate? Not with the church, but with the pagan religion of the Roman Empire. It is the day on which the ancient pagans assembled at sunrise, faced the east as they do Easter Sunday morning today, and worshipped the sun. It was Constantine, emperor of the Roman Empire, and not a pope, who made Sunday the official so-called Christian day of rest. But it was enforced, people were caused to accept it universally, by the church. Now, after Mr. Armstrong explained the origins of Sunday worship, he further explained how the Roman Catholic Church adopted the government structure of the Roman Empire. Where then did human church government derive its present form, he asked elsewhere in his book. He then answers, the first pope in the real sense of the world was Leo I, says the Encyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical Literature. To Leo, the form of government of the Roman Empire was the most marvelous thing on earth, he applied its principles to the church, organizing the church into a government, forming the papacy. Elsewhere in his book, The Incredible Human Potential, Mr. Armstrong further explained how the gospel Jesus Christ preached about the coming kingdom of God was replaced with a substitute gospel about the person of Christ, proclaiming the messenger but suppressing the message. Now, the provinces of the Roman Empire were called dioceses long before the bishoprics of the Catholic Church were called dioceses. 
and the chief high priest of the ancient Roman College of Pontiffs was styled Pontiflex Maximus long before Pope Francis adopted Pontiflex for his Twitter handle. So the Vatican's new constitution really comes from its imperial spirit and desire for dominance. The word Catholic means universal, so the Pope wants to bring all peoples under Roman government. The Bible often uses a woman to symbolize the church. You can reference 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 27, and Revelation 19 verse 7 for proof of that. But another important scripture that uses a woman in the church is Isaiah 47. Uh, this chapter describes a woman or a church called daughter of Babylon, daughter of the Chaldeans, and lady of kingdoms. And this woman says to herself, I shall not know the loss of children. Now, it's a well-established historical fact that the Chaldeans of the Neo-Babylonian Empire immigrated to Italy during and after the reign of Caesar Augustus. The book New Testament Survey by Merrill Tenney is used as a textbook at Herbert W. Armstrong College. It describes the Eastern mystery religions that became prevalent in Rome as Chaldean immigrants poured into the Italian peninsula. Many of the doctrines of these Eastern mystery religions were adopted by the early Christian church. Therefore, Roman Catholicism is the daughter of Babylon that the prophet Isaiah spoke against. So when this church, described in Isaiah 47, says, I shall not know the loss of children, she means she will not allow the various Protestant denominations that have rebelled against her to remain independent. The Pope's new evangelical crusade is an attempt to woo them back. And while it is unlikely that the Vatican will make any sweeping doctrinal changes, the church may make strategic compromises standing firm in one area while compromising in another to attract more converts. But all people under Rome's authority will be forced to adopt Sunday worship when the Vatican garners enough power to enforce its dictates. To further understand what the Bible says about the religion that will dominate the world during the last days, please request a free copy of Mr. Armstrong's book, Who and What is the Prophetic Beast? as well as a free copy of Trump Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry's book, The True History of God's True Church. It's time for today's Last Word. The liberal left is comically self-contradictory. When a Christian missionary recently tried to, quote, bring Jesus to the remote Indian Ocean island of Sentinel, and tribesmen riddled his body with darts and dragged his corpse across the beach, liberals declared, those people have every right to defend themselves against foreign intrusion. That man was killed not by the Sentinelese, but by his own arrogance. Now, at the same time, when Americans deployed tear gas to repel a convoy of foreigners from illegally entering the United States, liberals screamed, those people have every right to come into this country. How dare America defend its borders from foreign intrusion? 
These kinds of oxymorons are everywhere. Liberals having cast aside principles, virtue, and truth itself plunge themselves into thickets of impossible moral conundrums. They say somehow simultaneously that women are entitled to freedom from sexual harassment and that pornography is healthy and that the Bible's prohibitions against lust, rape, fornication, and adultery are oppressive and irrelevant and that criticizing Muslims who oppress and even rape women is Islamophobic and that all men are rapists and potential rapists and they should not be trusted. And if a man denies an accusation of sexual misconduct, he's a liar, without question. And that if a biological male says he realizes he's really a woman, then he's telling the truth. He must be believed without question and should then be allowed to participate in women's sports and to access women's locker rooms and bathrooms. And that gender is a social construct and biology has no bearing on whether we are male or female, and that women are inherently better leaders than men, and the country would be better off if we had more women in power. All these things can't all be true. And one consequence of all of these incongruities is that liberals often end up fighting other liberals over who has more virtue. One self-righteous liberal tries to signal multicultural bona fides and gets attacked by another self-righteous liberal for cultural appropriation. I have a confession to make. When I see this kind of liberal infighting, it gives me a certain pleasure. But this is what piqued my interest at a recent headline at Rewire News, a left-wing website. Its author has recognized some of these self-contradictions and is trying to square the circle. Recent political gains by women have given rise to the feminist slogan, the future is female. This author, who identifies herself as a white heterosexual female, has concluded, as in, in the headline, no, the future is not female, it's non-binary. This is what the article said. I know it's supposed to be a forward-looking slogan that envisions a time where all women are given our due in politics and culture, but the statement reinforces some very backward ideologies. Whiteness, binaries, and oppression go together. Black, white, male, female, gay, straight, the list goes on and on. We can't embrace a pithy but exclusionary slogan, even one that asserts that we need more non-men in leadership, especially non-white and non-straight ones. We all have moral and ethical obligations to decolonize our thoughts and language, rooting out binaries that label and devalue people. And that includes even activist spaces, because anyone who reinforces these binaries whether intentionally or not, is participating in upholding the oppressive institutions of a white patriarchal society. So there you have it. I, I suppose it was inevitable that left-wing feminists promoting more women into power would fall afoul of the left-wing non-binary crowd. But liberal virtues are constantly shifting. Yesterday's righteousness is today's oppression. A liberal victory, quote-unquote, is a mirage. It's always beyond the horizon. Before it's reached, a faction has broken off 
to follow a new, more radically revolutionary flag. This author says, the future is one where we don't push a binary norm. The future should be non-binary, period. Now just try to imagine the world that she's suggesting here. A world devoid of black and white, where everything is a gradient of grays, and we're literally unable to make the simplest distinctions between male and female, or even between ones and zeros. Through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 5 and verse 20, God says this, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This inversion of reality describes our world very well, as it already is. But I wonder how much farther the world is going to go toward obliterating binary thinking altogether and refusing to even acknowledge differences between good and evil, darkness and light, bitter and sweet. What this author of this article will not openly acknowledge, so you can detect it in her tone, is this. This fanciful world she's describing, which does not and cannot exist, can only be pursued through authoritarianism. She says the future should be binary, period. Now, this sounds like a fringe view, but the reality is people in power are increasingly agreeing with radical ideas like this. What happens to those who disagree? What happens to those who stubbornly refuse to play along? To learn more about why this thinking is so dangerous, request a free copy of our booklet, Redefining Family. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Jeremiah Jacques and Andrew Miller. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Diane Ackerman. I don't want to get to the end of my life and find that I lived just the length of it. I want to have lived the width of it as well. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. Listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.